Welcome to Outside In, a one-half-hour interview and conversation about public policy between me, Roger Kahn, and one of the many interesting people visiting the Crested Butte and Gunnison Valley this summer to share their knowledge, insights, wisdom with people in our community. Our guest today is Jeremy Suri. He is a professor at the University of Texas in Austin in um, the School of Public Affairs and the Department of History. He is the author and editor of nine books on contemporary politics and foreign policy. His most recent book is The Impossible Presidency, The Rise and Fall of America's Highest Office. Surrey writes for major newspapers and magazines and various online sites and blogs. He's a popular public lecturer, and he appears frequently on radio and television programs. Of his work, Suri writes, I am a child of the global transformations that remade society in the last century, war, migration, nation building, and mobility through higher education. All of my research, writing, and teaching seeks to explain these transformations. I am a proponent of historical and political studies that are broad, compelling, creative, and ultimately useful. We should research with monkish rigor as we write and lecture with novelistic flair. Professor Surrey teaches courses on strategy and decision-making, leadership, globalization, international relations, and modern history. His research and teaching have received numerous prizes and in 2007, Smithsonian Magazine named him one of America's top young innovators in the arts and sciences. Professor Suri, it's a delight to have you with us. Welcome to Outside In. It's my pleasure to be on your show. I want to right away get into the meat of a lot of your recent research and thinking, and I want to begin by asking how our presidency has risen and fallen in the course of the American Republic? Well, this is uh, the question at the center of my new book on the impossible presidency. The office of the presidency, Roger, was created um, really out of nothing by the founding fathers. There was no precedent for it. Uh, They had to invent something new. Uh, In many ways, what they were inventing was someone who would have certain monarchical powers without being a monarch, someone who would bring people together, someone who would rise above faction, which is why George Washington did not belong to any political party. So the office began as not an office to make day-to-day policy, but an office that was designed to bring the citizens of 13 very divided states together. Over time, as I show in my book, the office grew to serve more and more purposes. In Andrew Jackson's time to provide land and access for settlers moving west in Abraham Lincoln's time to keep the Union together, to end slavery, in fact. And of course, in Theodore Roosevelt and Franklin Roosevelt's times to actually institute reforms that would improve the lives of citizens. As the office grew to take on all of these additional demands, This created new problems for the office, Uh, not enough resources, but more importantly, too many uh, claims, too many things for the president to do. And the office became more and more bloated. And we have today a very, very powerful presidency. Before we get to today, Professor Suri, where did this 
growth climax, this rise right. climax. So I argue, I argue that the climax of the rising presidency is Franklin Roosevelt, the New Deal in World War II. That what he does is transform the very small office that George Washington held <clears throat> into an office that 150 years later is now not only providing jobs for American citizens— but now reconstructing the world. When Franklin Roosevelt dies in early 45, he's essentially president of the world. We're the only ones left mm -hmm. standing. And Roosevelt's ideas of a new deal become the foundation for the United Nations and become the foundation for the Marshall Plan. So this small office of George Washington's, where George Washington had to go hat, hat in hand to each state to get soldiers to serve in the Whiskey Rebellion, to put down the Whiskey Rebellion, now Franklin Roosevelt commands one of the largest armies in the world, and he's responsible for rebuilding the world. That's the climax of presidential power. Of the rise of, of the, the rise. It's also the beginning of the fall. Because what I argue, and Franklin Roosevelt is my hero, but nonetheless, uh, the demands, the expectations, the responsibilities which he takes on are unfulfillable. And that contributes to new um, dissatisfaction. And wh why are they unfulfillable? Well, in part, just because they require resources that not even the United States has. The expectations are so great. But there's another point that I try to make in the second half of the book, which is that the responsibilities that a president now takes on uh, require the kind of energy, insight, and unflagging ability to solve problems that no human being has. And that's what makes the office impossible. I show in the second half of the book uh, how presidential calendars reflect the uh, unwieldy nature of this office. It's not that government's too big. It's that a few people are trying to do too much. Presidents by Kennedy's time, and I compare Kennedy's calendars with Roosevelt's. Kennedy wanted to be Roosevelt. But Kennedy's calendars show that he spends his time running from problem to problem without even time to think without even time to really consider what he's doing. Uh, it's what some of us in our own lives struggle with, right? Too many things to do, not enough time to think. Mm -hmm. And that's why we get presidents in the second half of the 20th century and today, including our current president, who are reactive, who don't solve big problems, who instead spend more time mobilizing people and more time making ideological statements than actually addressing core fundamental issues that take the time, resources, and focus that the men in these offices don't have. I'm interested in, in the latter part of your analysis for independent of the office holder, whether or not your thesis holds given that so many people work for the president, and I don't remember which president it was that said, if the decision isn't important enough, I wouldn't get it. Right, right. And this is uh, Harry Truman who says and the buck stops here. Anything that comes to him well, is yeah. a decision no one else uh, could settle on. So one of the things I show in the book is how the staff of the presidency has certainly grown. Washington had basically no staff. Even Herbert Hoover had really three staff people. Wow. Franklin Roosevelt had to beg Congress to let him have six. Um, so today, uh, just the National Security Council alone, which of course didn't exist till after World War II, has about two to three hundred staff members. Just the National Security Council. Mm -hmm. That's not including a lot of other things. So um, the office has grown in terms of staff, but that has not made it easier for the president because now the president is managing a staff. 
And he's not having problems solved by that staff. More and more problems come up to him because staff members deal with implementation, but still decisions need to be made about what to do. Take the Affordable Care Act. Even after the passage of the Affordable Care Act, there are lots of day-to-day decisions that have to be made about how government resources are going to be allocated to deal with uh, various changes in the health care market. Take foreign policy. Uh, no staff member for the president can decide what to do in Syria or Iran, or North Korea. Staff members will write papers addressing concerns and make proposals, but the president still has to decide. And if you think about international policy, what we do is we go from one crisis to another, rather than spending the time to think about and formulating a broader set of policy positions that would structure our relationship and allow us to achieve more internationally. Robert Michels wrote a book, I think, prior to the Second World War, I'm almost sure, uh, called The Iron Law of Oligarchy. Yep, yep. I, I'm sure you know it. And uh, it makes me wonder, to what extent does the bureaucracy, the government bureaucracy, impede or facilitate the, chain, the, the ability of the president to be effective in the modern era? So it's a fantastic question, very relevant for today also. Uh, We have to have a more sophisticated understanding of bureaucracy. Bureaucrats are not horrible people who are trying to steal power away from elected leaders. There is no deep state. That's nonsense. On the other hand, bureaucrats do have an enormous amount of influence uh, because they're in the job of implementing and interpreting what the law means and what the decisions of others mean. So that could be a military bureaucrat. It could be a a health worker, a Medicare bureaucrat, whatever it is we're talking about. What really happens, and Richard Neustadt wrote about this in the 1960s, and I quote him in the book, is the president is constantly negotiating with the bureaucracy. It's a constant negotiation. It's the same with any university president and their faculty or any corporate board leader and their uh, employees. The negotiation is that the president gives the guidance along with Congress, but then the bureaucracy will come back and say what it can and can't do. And then there has to be constant adjustment. Think about this in terms of American military interventions. When the United States went to war in Iraq, George W. Bush had certain ideas about what we should do. The military came back and said, this is how we think we can do it. And there's a negotiation that occurs. That's actually what good governance is about. There's nothing wrong with that. We need a strong bureaucracy. And we need leaders who have experience with the bureaucracy, understand how it works, and understand how to manage it. My point is that takes a lot of time. And that's what presidents struggle with. And it also has another self-protecting interest group that affects decision-making. Absolutely. But I think it's an interest group that often doesn't understand the broader purposes of what it's doing because those broader purposes have not been laid out. It's not that the bureaucracy resists political leadership is that political leadership doesn't often give the bureaucracy effective goals and effective measures for what the bureaucracy should do. I I remember I I was asked to go to work for the Carter administration in the Department of Labor and uh, was working on something out here that I found so interesting that I chose not to do it, and I consulted with them. And I consulted with the Office of Contract Compliance, OFCCP, I guess it was, and um, the, the director of that organization said to me in a private conversation at one point that he said, you know, the biggest problem I've got is that the bureaucrats that exist here don't want contract compliance in ter- the way we want it. 
and they resisted the movement. Right, right, right. I get it. Um, and, and that happens all the time. It happens in city government, too. It happens within universities. Um, my point is twofold. First of all, sometimes there's a reason why uh, government bureaucrats are resisting. So, for example, quite recently, the head of the AP, EPA, the Environmental Protection mm-hmm. Agency, who's no longer head of the Environmental Protection Agency, was asking uh, the agency to do things that were, quite frankly, illegal. And bureaucrats resisted that. That's their job. That's their job mm-hmm. to, to resist that, right? Um, so there are times when there's a reason for resistance. But you're also right. Uh, bureaucrats, like any other group of human beings, can get into a situation where they're defending a norm of behavior that's their norm, not the purpose of their organization. That is the responsibility then of political leadership, not to fire people, but to create the appropriate incentives. And one of the problems the Carter administration had, I'm not an expert on your area, but certainly in many of the areas I've studied, is the political leadership didn't know how to actually lead the bureaucracy. Well, there's truth to that. Let, let, let me go back to your main thesis in your new book and, and um, ask you to elaborate a little bit. You focus not on the office holder. Correct. But the office of the president itself. Correct. Why do you do that? Well, because I think, first of all, uh, we spend a lot of time focusing on the office holder. I do that, too, in other books and and, in daily conversation and other writings. And that's important. But we all know that it's not just the driver who determines how the car goes. The, the, The car itself matters, how the car is designed and how the design of the car has changed over time. And that's something that's underanalyzed. One of the points I make early in the book is we know a lot about presidents, but actually very little about the presidency. Most American citizens don't know what actually goes on. They don't know how presidents actually spend their time. The current president's a little different from others. But the ones in the, past, in the recent past, from uh, Clinton to Bush to Obama, and of course going farther back, as I do all the way to Washington, they had certain behavior patterns that were structured by the office. The offices we hold determine a lot of what we do. It's not just ideology. And I sometimes think, Roger, we spend too much time arguing over ideology and not enough time analyzing what people actually do. So you're saying that in addition to the man making the office, the office makes the man. At least as much as the man makes the office, the office makes the man. I, don't, I agree with you. I don't think a lot of people see that. And, and, I, and I think that's, that's a problem that they don't because uh, this is actually one of the main goals of my book is to educate voters that when you're choosing someone, the person you like most might not be the most effective president. We are not choosing people who we want to have as friends or want to have a beer with as our presidents. We're choosing people who we think can manage and lead this behemoth. And sometimes that might mean we should vote for someone who we like less but think is a better person to lead the office. That happens all the time in business, right? You don't hire your friends. You hire the best person for the job. But, but you're also now, when you're talking about this behemoth, you're implicitly talking about the post World War growth, World War II growth of the bureaucracy and and what is now the behemoth. Prior to FDR, there were very different personalities that occupied the presidency. Absolutely, Washington presumably was personality wise different than Jackson, different than Lincoln, to mention Absolutely. just some of those that you mentioned. To what extent did that office 
nullify, the office of the president, nullify or minimize the impact of that person's personality? It shaped the impact of their personality. So, so George Washington is a good place to start because he's one of the most studied figures. And Washington had enormous uh, influence on the revolution and the development of American society before we even had a presidency. And his personality manifested itself very different from when he was president. For example, and this is something that's been brought out in a lot of also um, recent um, cultural work, like uh, the the play Hamilton by Lin-Manuel Miranda, Washington as general didn't have to contend with different policy positions. He was the commander of American military forces. He dealt with military strategy, and his personality was, was a commanding general. As president, he's not a commanding general. As president, he's someone who's actually bringing together very different viewpoints mm-hmm. on the world. That's a very different job. His personality becomes much more diplomatic, much more consensual, uh, and much more fatherly than warrior-like when he's president, and that's because of the office. The same mm-hmm. thing you could say about Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln himself says this uh, before his untimely death, that the office made him. Uh, he comes into the Civil War opposed to slavery, but not an abolitionist. This is really important, right? He believes that this, the slave problem, that the, the goal for the short term is to keep the Union together and prevent the spread of slavery, and that over time, slavery will die off in the South. The war and the responsibilities of being president and the need to have African-American soldiers on the Union side change him and make him into a radical, make him into an abolitionist mm-hmm. that we remember and revere. So these are two great examples of where personality certainly matters, but the office is shaping it. Before we move on, what about Theodore Roosevelt? Theodore is a great example of this as well. I mean, he is, I think, probably the most larger-than-life personality in our presidential history. Uh, If I might, one journalist who covered him is one of my favorite lines I have in the book says, "You uh, you would meet Theodore Roosevelt, he would shake your hand, and then you would go home and wring him out of your clothes. (laughs) He would just get into you. But Theodore Roosevelt, for all his energy, when he becomes president, he finds that uh, he has to actually work with people he never thought he'd work with, the Russian czar, the Japanese uh, military leadership. And he becomes a great diplomat. People didn't think of him as a diplomat before he was uh, president. Mm -hmm. You could see his energy coming out, but coming out in a different way, not charging San Juan Hill, but now actually negotiating the end of the Russo-Japanese war and winning a peace prize for it. Jeremy, in the last... Roughly 10 minutes that we've got, I want to focus on uh, what I think is the most important implication of your structural analysis, mm-hmm. if you will. Um, and and <clears throat> when you recognize that the office of the president has changed over time dramatically, risen and fallen, yes. as you point out in, in uh, your conversation with me and as well as in your book— What does that imply for the future? You know, we are not going to have fewer bureaucrats. We are not going to, quote, unquote, drain the swamps. What does that then mean for what the president's office, as well as an individual president, might have to do in order for the office of the presidency to function. Absolutely. This is where I conclude the book and what I think is the most important implication. Um, You cannot be a successful president by trying to do everything. 
And too often in our politics today, people running for office give a one-line promise on every issue. That's what our media world, uh, not thoughtful shows like yours, but that's what standard media shows are asking people to do. On the other hand, uh, and we have a good test case for this now, you can't run government by saying you're not going to listen to anyone. You're just going to do what you feel like in the morning and tweet it out to the world. And you can't promise you're going to drain, drain the swamp just because you're, uh, you're opposed to the establishment because you end up then putting other people in power who come out of the swamp anyway. Look, we still have Goldman Sachs running the Treasury Department now. So neither approach works. What you have to be is more strategic. We are not strategic as a society today. We try to do everything or nothing. Being strategic means choosing priorities, emphasizing those, mobilizing energy and resources behind those. The next set of presidents that we need to bring the presidency up and bring our country up have to be presidents who engage the American public in a conversation about the two or three things that matter most to us, and then how we're going to use the enormous resources and capacities that we have to address those issues. Not the crises Vladimir Putin creates, not Kim Jong-un. Isn't it pathetic that we spend so much time focusing on Kim Jong-un? He's a threat. But the future of the American Republic does not hinge on Kim Jong-un. It hinges on whether we have air we can breathe, whether we have a health care system that doesn't bankrupt us and that actually keeps people alive, on whether we actually have immigrants coming into our country who bring innovation and we fit that into our innovative economy and reforming our education system. There's so many things that matter. We need to choose three or four. And we need leadership that will lead and focus the bureaucracy on dealing with those problems. And, and by the way, my students and young people I meet, they think exactly this way. They're problem solvers. Let's get problem solvers in office. Well, let, let, let's, can, one, can one office with one president do what you're suggesting? No. So the, the implication, and I talk about this a little bit at the end of the book, uh, and it's come up in a lot of, of reviews of the book, one implication is that if you're going to set priorities, someone else needs to do some of the other things. And we are the only major democracy in the world that has a single executive president that does not have a president and a prime minister. Most corporations have CEOs and CFOs. Most universities have presidents and provosts. Uh, we had only one president. The founders talked about this at the convention because we were a small country. We're a very big country now. We're a big empire. So uh, there, I think, would be a lot of logic in differentiating responsibilities. Maybe we should have a president who focuses on the big security issues and big foreign policy issues and have a prime minister who focuses on some of the important domestic policy issues and then force them to work together. I think that would be a lot better than what we have now, which is where we have a presidency that tries to do one thing and a Congress that tries to do another thing and we don't get anywhere. You're, you're suggesting, and if I heard what you just now said, that the president focuses on foreign policy issues and someone else on domestic policy issues. To the extent that that's true, for example, President Obama, for the most part, campaigned on domestic issues. Most presidents do. And, yes. And then the forces of international concern of issues that arise internationally that a president is faced with take over and that president is not able to focus on the domestic precisely stuff. precisely how how do you avoid that well i think we need as a public to recognize what we're electing people to do 
Uh, one of the problems is that we elect people to be president who often aren't prepared for the foreign policy challenges they face. That would be tr true for both Obama and Trump. So we need to be putting people into office who are effectively prepared, and maybe we should have someone else who's handling the domestic issues and therefore have a different way we determine who we're voting for as president. The main point here is that this office, that's like a garbage can we throw everything in, uh, is making it difficult for us to choose the right people to do the right things. We need to streamline the office. That doesn't mean smaller government. That means streamlining the priorities and building behind that. And if we care, if foreign policy is a priority, then we should be electing presidents who are actually well-suited to do that work. What does campaigning for presidency do to that analysis? Well, so in our present world, campaigning for presidency <clears throat> makes it impossible to be strategic because the way you get elected president, the same way you get elected to Congress, the same way you get elected to city council, is by raising a lot of money. And so how do you raise money from people? Well, when they offer you money and ask you to do things, you say yes. It's very simple. You never raise money by saying no to people. And so what do successful candidates do? They find a way to say yes to as many people as possible, which is precisely why we have the impossible presidency, because presidents come in overcommitted to too many things, and they end up, instead of doing the big things that matter, doing a lot of small things and putting off the big controversial issues. They end up trying to please as many people as possible. Instead of policy making, it's throwing bones to various groups that want bones. But those groups that want those bones usually want money. Oh, of course. And then the question is, to what extent can campaigning eliminate that as a driving force and allow us to get to the kind of uh, government and office holders, the, you know, the office itself and the office holders being more focused on the priority issues that you alluded I, to. I think that the way to do that is to make our campaigns less about money, not eliminate money, but make them less about money. We need to have serious limits on how much money can be spent and where money can be collected from when you are campaigning for office. Uh, right now, that is destroying our system, and it is destroying the office. It's not just the person. That's my point. It's creating an office that's committed in too many places. We also need um, to create better rules for how we assess candidates. The way we do debates now is silly. People stand up there and lie and just make stuff up. That's not debating. That's used car sales work, right? What we need to instead is create a national, it could be a not-for-profit debate commission that would set up rigorous debate analysis and rigorous analysis of what people say. Uh, and we can do this. We do this anytime you want to put a drug on the market or you want to sell a car. We have all sorts of processes with bureaucrats where we assess the veracity of what Toyota is telling us about their vehicles, right? We can do this. Uh, and that's how we create consensus on what truth is and what truth isn't. Right now, anything goes, just as if you're going to the used car lot, right? Um, so we can create new structures, that's the whole point, to replace the old structures. History is about structural evolution and reform. You improve a society not by just having a good idea and putting a person with a good idea. You improve society, this is what TR said, by building the kinds of new institutions that improve on the problems of the day. Food for thought without a doubt. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing not only your knowledge, which is vast, but your insights, your wisdom. I appreciate it, and I know our listeners will too. Thanks very much. I Jeremy enjoyed the Surrey. conversation. Thank you. Take care.
You've been listening to Outside In, an original production of KBUT, hosted by Roger Kahn and produced and engineered by Mark Dugan. Hear archived episodes at kbut.org. Just look under the Programs tab.